We have this sermon and one more sermon left in the Lord's Prayer. As we look at verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The greatest risk we face as Christians, as a church in these days, is not that we might miss out on the latest gimmick that the church is pulling. It's not that we might miss out on giving and have empty offering baskets. Our greatest danger is not even losing a reputation within the community, losing heaven. To not enter the kingdom of God. Forgiven people are those who enter the kingdom. Those who are forgiven and those who are forgiving. And the forgiven are marked by forgiving one another. And that's the context of which now we launch into this petition within the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to do just three things this morning. First, I want to look at this petition and the first part of it forgive us our debts what that means for us in our Christian life and in our prayer. Then we'll look at the second part of this petition, forgiving our debtors, forgiving one another. And then lastly, I want to look at the relationship between these two, exactly how are they related to one another. All right? So we'll begin with forgive us our debts. As you come to in the Lord's Prayer, you remember we ask for three things for God, that His name be hallowed, his kingdom to come, his will be done. And then we turn and we ask for provision. We ask for pardon, forgiveness, and we ask for protection. And so we ask for provision last week. Give us this day our daily bread. And now we ask for pardon. We ask for forgiveness. And so, indeed, this part of the Lord's Prayer is our confession. It is a confession to God. I think sometimes confession can be a bit confusing if you come from a religious background, sometimes confession can involve a priest and it can involve a certain... This confession is to our God. There is a confession, there is an ask that we... There is a call that we petition God for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. 1 John 1, 8 through 8-10 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So within the Lord's Prayer, within this template, this example of how then we are to approach God in prayer, is a call for confession, that we acknowledge, confess, repent of sin. So asking for forgiveness assumes kind of three things, and I want to look at those this morning. This means that we acknowledge that we have an obligation to obey our God. We acknowledge that we have an obligation to obey our God. Too quickly, the law of God, the commands of God are tossed out and categorized as legalism, as if God would relate to us simply on the basis of this kind of kind fatherly love, and for him to have any obligations for us, then would, you know, maybe wipe out that love and not make it genuine. And a lot of theology is built around it of, of then kind of building your own uh, 
self-esteem, making sure that, you know, the life you've created for yourself, it's okay, you're okay. And then you come out with theologies of, in the end, love wins, that, you know, don't worry about the sin, God will take care of that, but he, he loves you. And there's this, this softening of an obligation before God. It is true, I don't want to undermine the truth of our fatherly child relationship with God. Indeed, he is our father. We are told to approach him as a heavenly father. His love for us is deep and real and genuine, but that does not undermine the sense that we have obligations to our God. Any more than the fact that, you know, I love my wife, but that doesn't mean that I'm not obligated to her either. That I'm committed to showing my commitment in certain ways and by not doing certain things. There is love. Too often we take away that third use of the law, the commands of Jesus, the, the warning and the strength of those commands, that we have an obligation to our God. He has the right to set forth how we are to live, how we are to conduct ourselves. He doesn't need to check with us to make sure it is relevant for us right now. He doesn't check with us to, you know, we let him know if that's a necessary command for us. And so we kind of just parse our way through Scripture, and here's what we owe God, and then here's what we just make our own decisions, how we want to live. But there's an obligation to God. He has set an obligation. We are obligated to obey him. When you look at words for sin within Scripture, in your text, you probably have in verse 12 there, Matthew 6, forgive us our debts. You might have forgive us our transgressions. Both are good um, translations there referring to sin. There's lots of, of words used for sin in the New Testament, and most of them paint a word picture for us, a picture as law-breaking, picture of crossing a line, you've crossed the line of missing the mark, of a, a deviation, rebellion, pollution, missing the target. These are all word pictures that the words in the New Testament kind of draw to our mind to give us an idea. And they paint the idea, they, they paint a clear picture for us that Jesus has set forth a way in which we are to conduct ourselves as children of the King way we are to live before him, to interact, to love our God, to interact with one another. And we are obligated to obey those. It's not up for debate or choice. And to miss the mark, to fall short, to, to cross the line of what he has called us to do is called sin. So there's an obligation to our God. I think the second assumption then builds on that, and this means that we acknowledge that our sin, even the most normal or mundane or respectable sins, if you're in our community life group, we need to acknowledge them, and we need to take sin seriously. Sin quite literally has contaminated every living person at every level. The mind, the emotions, the affections, the will, your conduct. It is the degenerative power within the human race 
that causes every sickness, every disease, every cancer, every injury. Sin lays at the foundation of every broken marriage, of every broken friendship, of every broken promise, of every hurt feeling, of every injury, of death. And I'm not saying it's a one-for-one type of relationship in that, okay, you were proud yesterday, so you have a cold today. But sin lies as the root of all hardship and all suffering and all conflict. And we are told that sin then indwells, touches, infests every level of us. So we are left with this then, (laughs) the greatest need, the best news of the gospel is forgiveness for that sin. That God forgives. Because without forgiveness then, the smallest of those sins, as we would categorize them, leaves us as objects of divine wrath. For God to execute full punishment on us. Too often then, we approach the gospel and we take our own sin so lightly. We excuse it so easily. And you see kind of a softening. Again, we're looking at some of this stuff in our community life group and talking about the softening of the language of sin, not just in culture but in the church as well. And you kind of... You, you see it, and there, there is always a couple of, they probably don't call them sins, but a, a couple things that are, it's like popular to hate. Like domestic violence is a sin that's like everyone detests right now. And it's a terrible sin. But right now, you know, like all the athletes, all the actors, all the movie stars, they're making commercials about domestic violence, domestic violence. And there's kind of this, what seems to be this kind of real fake anger at it. This, whoa, uh, this, uh, <laughs> this false rage at this sin. But it'll pass and people will quit caring about it and something, like a, a, something else will come up. Now it'll be like wastefulness. Are you a good caretaker of the earth? And we all are outraged at people who aren't. And so we tend to follow these, within the church, kind of follow this cultural stream of letting the world cue to us, okay, here are the two moral problems. We would call them sin that we are to be concerned with. It is littering and domestic violence. And so that's what we're concerned with. And we have then this huge growing list of things that we no longer really categorize as sin. We no longer really pay much attention to. It just becomes the normal way of life. You know, the, the self-pity, the, the pride, the flattery of one another and trying to get flattery from one another, the impatience, complaining. I mean, you can go through the list of the little things that mark your life on a daily basis, that can mark my life on a daily basis, that, you know, everyone else just accepts. It's just who we are. We've made so much room and become so lenient that 
sin just begins to infest us and become who we are. And so when we're told to confess our sin, to ask forgiveness for our debts, we forget, we don't even acknowledge or think of the daily debt that piles up as we fail to live to the standard, the obligations that God has set for us. And so when we are told to pray, forgive us our debts, it's not just, okay, it's a line I say to get out of the way. It is a recognition that God, we are obligated to God, and he has every right to set any law or rule of life upon us that he desires. His word clearly lays out what those are. And we don't have the choice of just deciding which ones are for us and which ones aren't. We are obligated to our God. He loves us deeply and tenderly and kindly, but that does not mean that we are not obligated to him. And then secondly, we then, seeing that, we acknowledge our sin, even the ones that are so acceptable nowadays that no one's going to categorize them as sin. They still are. Sin destroys, sin ruins and tears apart. Typically, it doesn't start off with domestic violences like the first time you ever show anger. It starts somewhere small and it grows and it grows and it ends up tragically ruining relationships, ruining marriages. So we need to be those who let the word inform us of what our obligations are before God. Don't pick a couple popular sins to be, you know, outraged about. But look at sin genuinely. And then finally, this means that we trust God for forgiveness, for only He can forgive. So we're called to forgive, or we're called to ask for forgiveness. It assumes that we trust God that he will forgive. Psalm 86.5, For you, O Lord, are good and eager to forgive. God is not reluctant to show mercy and forgive. He's not like us who, for some reason, want to withhold mercy and kindness. God is quick to forgive, quick to be gracious, quick to show mercy. You think Jesus Christ, as he hung on the cross, and he cries out, Father, forgive them. Here's the son. He knows the heart of the father. And even in the midst of the most heinous evil and crime you can think of, as the son of God is tortured and killed, he calls out to the heart of the father, forgive them. You think of the prophets, and there you read through the Old Testament and the prophets, and there's all kinds of judgment and, and promises of coming judgment. Yet the cry of the prophets within it is that Jesus is compassionate, or that God is compassionate, that he is kind. And that even in the midst of all out rebellion against God and idolatry, there is a cry for forgiveness, for mercy and compassion. And the truth is that God will forgive, God will be merciful, God will show compassion. But don't get confused, it's just, no, you know, in the Old Testament, he was harder on sin. Now he's softer on it. <laughs> you realize that forgiveness isn't just, God, ignore my sin, just don't worry about it. Forgiveness looks to Jesus Christ over and over and over, explaining your impatience, that debt that piles up, as Romans 1 and 2 would say. 
storing up wrath, clear passage after passage, that Jesus will not let, that God will not let one. We don't look to performance. We don't look to, you know, self-will and, and getting the right for your sin. He bore it all. Be pleased with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on my behalf. Because he has passed that forgiveness for me. Forgive us our debts. How, how does that look in your daily life then and in your, operate in your life, in your prayer? First, I would say that this needs to happen regularly. A cry for forgiveness needs to happen regularly. The request is we need provision daily, so we need forgiveness daily. Lots of people get lost one direction or the other. That I, okay, you were proud yesterday, so now pray and ask for forgiveness because you need the righteousness of Christ accounted to you all over again. You need another conversion experience. You let God down. You're not his child. Pray for forgiveness. That's not what we're asking. We're not dealing with justification when we talk about the daily confession of sin. Listen to Shedd as a theologian. He, he talks about justification this way. He says, The justification of a sinner is an all-comprehending act of God. All the sins of a believer, past, present, and future, are pardoned when he is justified. The sum total of his sin, all of which is before the divine eye, at the instant when God pronounces him a justified person, is blotted out or covered over by one act of God. Consequently, there is no repetition in the divine mind of the act of justification, as there is no repetition of the atoning death of Christ upon which it rests. It is once for all the atoning work has been done. Legally, you are counted righteous. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a son. And so do not get confused about forgiveness of sins. Don't live in this quandary where you begin to start, I have to confess my sight or I've lost my righteousness before God. Consistency and accuracy of your confession Antinomians, no law, will teach that we are justified. They get this truth. But because of that, there's no longer a need for confession. Like, we are forgiven, so why ask to be forgiven? And that's the answer. If we're forgiven, then why pray daily for forgiveness? The answer is kind of simple, because we keep sinning. We're commanded to confess our sin to our Heavenly Father. What you fail is when you look at the law and you see it then functioning as it did in that covenant of works with Adam. As you see it functioning as if the law were there for us to earn our way, to find our righteousness through the law. That's not what we're talking about. Adam failed... In him we all failed, and we continue to fail. Jesus Christ did not fail. <laughs> he fulfilled the law perfectly. He writes it upon our law and upon our hearts now. 
Now the law functions then as the rule for Christian life as we live in His kingdom, doing His will, hallowing His name. Here is the rule of life. And in that, we are always striving after God and falling short. And we are told to humbly seek Him in confession and ask for forgiveness as we fall short time and time again. The Westminster Confession makes a really good distinction here as we talk about asking for forgiveness but not getting it confused with justification. It says, God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sin, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have by the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, renew their faith and repentance. There's a distinction in this ongoing walk with God and this sanctification. Flip, if you would, to John chapter 13. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. I think there's a good distinction here to show us this need for confession, for repentance, how it deals with our sanctification as distinct from justification. If you remember, Jesus is, is washing the disciples' feet. He's in you know, the final verse uh, 4. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash me? What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, well, if that's the case, then Lord, not only my feet, but also wash my hands and my head. Give me an all on bath. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said not all are clean. So you have this, this what he's teaching here of, of him needing to wash the people's feet in order for them to have part in him. And so Peter's not understanding. He's like, well, if you need to wash my feet, then bathe me completely. God said, you're already washed. You're already bathed. But there's this ongoing washing and cleaning that needs to take place. We have a picture for us drawn out of justification and sanctification. That we are bathed in the blood of Christ, counted righteous in Him. And yet there is this ongoing need for washing. Not that we be bathed afresh and new in the blood of Christ because we messed up, but an ongoing washing. And there's a couple things implied then through the story I think are, are good for us to remember. One is that both the bathing and the washing are necessary to share in the kingdom of Christ. Both the bathing and the washing, both the justification and the ongoing process of Him washing us. Secondly, both are accomplished by God in Christ Jesus. 
It is not as if he does the bathing, he does the initial work, and now it's up to us to daily make sure we do everything right to keep us clean, to sanctify us. God does the washing, God does the bathing, God does the justifying, he does the sanctifying. The work is all his. And in justification is promised the ongoing cleansing that is needed. Faithful is he who began a work to complete it in you. So when we talk about regular confession, we have to remember, don't get your categories confused. We're not talking about justification, which rests the atoning work of Christ once for all, accounted to you. We're talking about taking sin seriously. We've offended our Heavenly Father, and we confess and we repent. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Justifying an ongoing work of confession. God is doing that work. He's doing all of that work. But he does it by means, doesn't he? We say this all the time. God washes. He continues to wash. But he does it through the means of the word. The preached word. Your independent time studying. As you see God's words, you see Jesus Christ revealed. As you see his commands revealed in scripture. He does it through prayer. As you commune in that way with the Father, He does it through the work of the Holy Spirit within you. He does it through the sacraments as you come and with a self-examining heart, you partake of these elements, seeing that indeed this is my only hope in this life and the life to come. And the beauty of Christ then begins to show the ugliness of sin. We see it in our lives and we confess it. It's in the gathering together, the body of Christ, as we sharpen one another. So keep each one other accountable as we just have friendships that encourage us on this journey. God uses means, but he is the one who does the work. So our asking for forgiveness is done regularly. Not to be confused with justification, but with living this life for the Father as children, not offending our Father. It is to be done repeatedly. Secondly, regularly, repeatedly. I know it's almost the same thing. I just want to maybe add another point, but uh, make a little distinction. I think the devil loves to use in our lives when we hit a certain sin that becomes a besetting sin for us. And you want to beat it. You want to conquer it. By the Spirit, you pray that he will. Maybe you've had this experience in your life. I have. And you come and you pour out your heart and you confess it to the Lord. And like 10 minutes later, you're engaged in the same activity. And you confess to the Lord and, you know, 10 minutes later, you're engaged in the same activity. And after like a week of that, don't you feel like God is sick of me coming to him, confessing this sin, and then me turning around and blowing it again? And the devil uses that to discourage us that we begin to look inward, that until I can fix this, God doesn't want to hear from me again. And we turn away from prayer. We turn away from whatever. We turn away from worship. We turn away from the body of Christ because we need to get fixed what we need because God's sick of me coming to him as a sinner. 
But we're told to go again and again and again and again. And God is eager and faithful to show mercy, to forgive. He's not reluctant in withholding it. He doesn't look at the child and your weakness and your pity and is moved by wrath. When he looks at our weakness, he is moved with mercy and pity. And that is the command when is asked, how many times do, are we to forgive one another? Seven times? And the answer is no, 70 times seven. And not like giving a specific number, whatever that would be. I don't know, you're a math teacher. No. Don't have Adam tutor your kids. Um, <laughs> the call is over and over and over again, and that is the promise. So yes, you confess your sins before God regularly. You can do it repeatedly. Don't be defeated in the struggle to turn away from God and overcoming sin. You do it specifically. You notice that it says, forgive us our debts, not just a general, forgive us our debt. Forgive us our debts. There are real things that are mounting up in our account. There are debts. There are specific sins. You know, it, it's much simpler to say, I'm such a bad sinner. I'm the chief of sinners but never really admit to being impatient with your spouse or whatever it might be. You know, you can kind of almost use that in your defense, like, I know I'm a sinner, but not this one. You know, and you kind of then defend every little point instead of realizing and confessing the specific ways you violate God's law. It's done regularly, repeatedly, specifically, and finally it's done boldly. Here's Jesus in human flesh telling us to ask for forgiveness from a God who is not reluctant to give it. You come boldly before God, not just in your praises, but also in your confession. Not shamefully hiding where he can't see you, but come acknowledging him. You're a sinner. He knows you're a sinner. And you come to him, and you come to him boldly, even in confession. He is faithful to forgive. All right, that was the first point. Forgive our debtors then. How do we forgive the sins of others? So we are to confess, and then we are to forgive others. I think the term here, forgiving our debtors, is instructive to us. We need to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. That when we forgive our debtors, we're remembering that there is always a debt or a cost in forgiveness. Just like when God forgives our sin, it doesn't mean that the sin didn't exist and he just ignores it. It means that we don't have to pay the debt for it. And the same is true with one another. Let's say I'm pulling in to the church here and you know I hit my brakes, but I don't quite stop. I slide up, I hit. James minivan out there and knock out a backlight. You know, and I can come in and I'm like, hey, I'm so sorry. And either he can say, that's fine, we'll take it down to the shop, we'll get an estimate and you can give me the money for it. Or he might say, don't worry about it, it was an accident, I'll take care of it. If he forgives me, it doesn't mean like it didn't happen and it's no longer going to cost anything. It just means instead of exacting payment from me, James is going to take on the debt himself. He is going to own it. And that's why forgiveness is difficult because there's always a debt, there's always a cost in forgiving one another. 
You know, sometimes it's a very simple, easy debt, and we're happy to forgive it. Rarely do we measure forgiveness in economic terms, as in, like, he forgave me $400 for a light. But there's still a debt in that someone might steal your reputation. Someone might steal your joy. Someone might steal an opportunity from you. Someone might ruin a friendship. Someone might just cause you grief and give you sleepless nights. The call isn't to just forgive and forget. That's a little bit of a myth. The call is that when you forgive, you own the debt yourself. That's why it's a struggle to forgive because you're deciding that you'll pay the price. You'll own that debt. So I say that's why forgiveness often goes on and on and on in the sense of, you know, it's not just like, hey, I forgave that person. If I really meant it, the battle's over forever. There might be someone in your life and your whole life is a battle to forgive them because you still carry the weight and you own the debt of it. And it can be an ongoing struggle of giving it over to the Lord and battling it. It doesn't mean it's not real forgiveness. It just means it's forgiveness in this fallen age and you're battling to continue to own that debt. So when he says that we forgive our debtors, that is what he's talking about, that we own, we don't exact payment from them for when they wrong us, but we own that debt. There's a definition of forgiveness. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but it's from Thomas Watson saying what forgiveness looks like. Here's his definition. When we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. It's quite a definition, isn't it? (laughs) Here's a forgiving spirit then, one who resists revenge, doesn't return evil for evil, wishes well, grieves when things go bad for that person, prays for their well-being, seeks reconciliation so far as it depends on you, comes to their aid in times of distress. That's the forgiveness that mirrors the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus. There's a lot more that could be said about forgiveness, but I think it's important that we get the right definition and not the wrong one. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't saying there's no consequences for sin. Forgiveness isn't an absence of anger at sin, saying that something bad is good. You sometimes get the wrong definition. The right definition is owning that yourself and seeking good for that person. So we need forgiveness from God, and we are called to forgive others. Finally, then, the relationship between the two. What does that look like then? The relationship between God forgiving us our debts and us forgiving others. Because they're definitely related. Verse 12, again, Matthew 6. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. That as there can be a bit confusing. It can kind of turn things. It's not a... It can't be replaced with because. In the sense of forgive us our debts because we have forgiven our debtors. As if our 
righteousness, our good actions are now meriting or earning or demanding forgiveness from God. So they don't relate that way. It also isn't as there can't be replaced with like in the sense of forgive us our debts like we also forgive our debtors in the sense of here's the example for you, God. How I forgive them, that's how you need to forgive me. That would be terrible. (laughs) None of us would survive. I think Luke 11 records the Lord's Prayer, and in Luke 11, it, it terms it this way, Forgive us our sins, for indeed we are forgiving everyone who is indebted to us. And the order is, just like always, we forgive others because we have been forgiven. God loved us first. God demonstrates mercy and kindness and grace He is the vine. We are the branches. Any sort of fruit that is produced is produced wholly because and through Jesus. Branch doesn't bear an orange all on its own and say, hey, can I join the tree now? Look what I got. It is God's work in and through us. So the relationship is not, if you're forgiving just right, then God might forgive you in a causative effect in that way. Ephesians 4, verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians three thirteen, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive So you are a forgiving person because you are a forgiven person. But you have to be a forgiving person. (laughs) The relationship is strong. Look, as soon as the Lord ends the prayer here, look at verse 14. He adds these little comments. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The kingdom of heaven is reserved for the forgiven and for the forgiving. Maybe a better way to say it is the kingdom of heaven is reserved for the forgiven and the forgiven people are marked by a forgiving spirit. You can't treasure a grudge. You can't love holding on to a grudge and hate mercy and forgiveness for someone and then come to God and plead for mercy and forgiveness for yourself. You're a new man with a renewed heart. A forgiven person is one who loves mercy and is quick to forgive. The kingdom of God is not populated with unforgiving people. That's what the text tells us. The Spirit will produce that within you. So again, does that mean that if you struggle with a spirit of unforgiveness and you have that one person in your life typically if you say that i can pretty much see like everyone there's somebody in someone's head 
the person who it's hard for you to forgive. Whatever that might be. It might be family member, it might be coworker, it might be whatever. But you know that ongoing struggle. It doesn't mean if that struggle exists that you no longer experience forgiveness of your sins from God in any way. But it's saying if you treasure that grudge, you hate mercy for that person, and that's just how you've settled to be, there is an examination then that needs to take place if you're a forgiven person. Because a forgiven person is one who forgives. And again, I think that is why it's so important, just to back up a step, why we get forgiveness right. That we don't make up an unbiblical definition. That it means it's, it's a once-for-all act that then we never struggle with again. Don't, you hear that taught sometimes, forgive and forget. And so there becomes this battle of guilt. Like, you know, I told that person I forgive them, but a month later I'm still having hard feelings about it. And so then it's like, I didn't do it right. I didn't do my forgiveness right. So let's start back over. And, or there's that lie that forgiving someone erases all consequences for the sin. You know, you do something terrible to me. Just because I forgive you doesn't mean like tomorrow we're best friends and we're planning our family vacations together. Or if you, uh, an easy illustration is, you know, you get caught at work stealing money. We can forgive you as a church. doesn't mean we're going to make you our treasurer. (laughs) You know, there are consequences even with forgiveness. And it's not agreeing that, it's not saying that something that was really bad is good. You know what I mean? It's not looking at it and saying, well, I forgive you. So what happened, it wasn't a big deal. It, it maybe is a big deal. It maybe is ugly. There maybe is consequences. But it's, could you go to that person when they're in a time of need and help them? Do you rejoice when bad things come into their life? Or do you grieve and pray for them when bad things happen? As much as depends on you, are you seeking reconciliation biblically? Not all the extra things we'll sometimes add, but are you... Seeking it biblically. So getting a right, good definition of forgiveness is important because it tells us the kingdom of God is reserved for the forgiven and the forgiven are those who are forgiving others. That's what they're marked by. So then we step back and just look at the church. Like, how then can a church be a group of people who hold petty grudges and are full of disunity with one another? It makes no sense, does it? Not saying, again, that there won't be hardships and there'll be times of clashing heads. That's going to happen. We're a whole bunch of sinners dwelling together. But we need to love mercy and love forgiveness and be quick and be constant in going after that one for another. Matthew 18, I won't turn there, just uh, do the time. Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35, gives a good illustration, I encourage you to look at it, of one who has been forgiven much, but then refuses to forgive someone else, and what that picture really looks like. And so often, that ends up being us. Take some time, read Matthew 18 there. 
not right now, in a little bit. And uh, dwell upon your own heart, how easily it is for us to assume, take for granted, and love mercy and forgiveness for ourselves and be so quick to deny everybody else of that because they just haven't earned it. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's important we understand. It's important we get the nuances right. We're not antinomian. We're not saying that there is no need for confession anymore because we've been forgiven and now whatever is all good. At the same time, we're not saying be overwhelmed with guilt every time something happens in your life. You know, it's time to have our conversion experience all over again. God has bathed you the blood of Christ. But there is a need for that washing, coming humbly before the Father, regularly, repetitively, specifically, and boldly confessing our sin and then being people who are marked by forgiveness, mercy, compassion to one another. Let's have a moment of prayer here together. God, we praise you for your word. We thank you for the way we were instructed in it. We thank you for this call to confession, for forgiveness, forgiving one another. I pray that we will do honest evaluation. Lord, I pray that we will rest and trust in this truth that it is God, the person of Christ, who does both the washing and the bathing, who justifies, who sanctifies. It is by the spirit that the deeds of the flesh are put to death. So help us to turn into legalists and now to take the law and use it as our measure of being right with God. But as children of the king, allow us to realize that we are obligated to our God. When we fall short of that, we are told to boldly confess, to turn from it, and to continue to pursue God. So instruct us in your word. Instruct us in forgiveness and indebtedness and indebtedness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.